America's an idea. An idea stronger than any army, bigger than any ocean. The single greatest nation in the history of the world, and the best is yet to come. From the U.S. Embassy in Dublin, this is The Diplomatic Pouch. We don't have an electoral college. Nobody cares about me in Ohio. We're a very different nation than when the electoral college was set up. To change something like that and a constitutional amendment, it'll take numerous election cycles, and I, and I fear I will be dead before that happens. I'm Dermot Keane from the Public Affairs Office at the Embassy. And I'm John B. Murphy. Welcome back. In this episode, we will look at how Americans elect their president in the electoral college system. JB, I'm guessing you've done your homework on all things electoral college? Indeed, I've tried. Can you explain it to me in 30 seconds? Oh, I wish it was that simple, Dermot. In other elections... Candidates are elected directly by the popular vote. But in the US, the president and the vice president are not elected directly by citizens. Instead, they're chosen by electors through a process called the Electoral College. The process of using electors comes from the Constitution. It was a compromise between a popular vote by citizens and a vote in Congress. For more on this, Let's listen to John Fortier, director of the Bipartisan Policy Center Democracy Project. People do vote. We have elections. Uh, the popular vote matters, but it matters in the states themselves, in the 50, 50 states and the District of Columbia. Uh, each of those states uh, is assigned a certain number of electors. They're, they're actually people, but for the sake of thinking about the numbers, we can think they, they have a certain number of electors. Uh, the smallest states in America have three, uh, and the largest states, the largest state of California has 55. And that's based mostly on population. Um, it's based on the number of seats in the House of Representatives, uh, but there's also uh, two seats for each state based on the size of our, uh, the number of representatives, senators in our Senate. And so uh, each American goes to the polling place. Um, they will see on a ballot Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden, but when they vote, they're actually voting to elect a slate, a group of electors from their state, three of them from a small state like Wyoming, 55 of them from, from California. And those electors are the, are the real determinants of who the president of the United States is. Now, for the most part, it really is a, a formality. Um, we add up the number of electoral votes you get. Uh, if you get a majority of them, uh, 270, you were elected president. And why was the Electoral College created? In our constitution, which is hard to change, uh, this system is here. And you know, so, some of the reasons for moving in that direction at the time were that uh, dates were really quite different and, and there was even some worry that we wouldn't have great communication between the states. Um, we wouldn't be able to identify even national figures who would be suitable to be president. Uh, we, we, maybe people would focus more on the locals. So one rule in the background of the Electoral College is you have to vote for one person of a, uh, not from your state and one person from your state. So again, it forces some thinking about the national. Um, 
you know, frankly, but it, it was not practical. One other reason, uh, and this could be done in another way, was that the Congress, uh, that, that, that the founders of our Constitution really cared that the president be elected separately from the legislature. So, JB, what is a swing state? We hear all about them, but what does that term mean, swing state? Well, each major U.S. political party has many states it counts on winning in November's presidential election. A handful of states are too close to call, and they are known as swing states. To explain a little more about these, I spoke to radio talk show host and Fox News contributor Leslie Marshall. The influence of those swing states are huge, and and they're becoming larger. Um, Prior to 2016, there were states that Democrats could kind of count on. Um, These are kind of called Rust Belt states because you have a lot of blue-collar working-class voters there. States like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. In 2016, when I saw those going to Donald Trump, I knew before the end that it was the end for Hillary Clinton and she didn't win the election. So this time around in 2020, what we're seeing is Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania thrown into the mix of swing states, uh, states like Florida and Ohio. For years, Ohio or Florida did determine the outcome of the election. I'm not saying it's a tiebreaker, but there are states in this country that are automatically given California to a Democrat, Texas to a Republican, New York to a Democrat, you know, Alabama to a Republican. Those are examples. Um, But now we're seeing more states become purple, like Colorado, um, not necessarily Republican or Democrat. Or you're seeing a very close race in some states that are typically very red, very Republican, very conservative, like Georgia. So there are a lot more states right now considered to be swing states. A swing state can swing either way, red for Republican or blue for Democrat. The next speaker we will hear from is Professor Paul Sorachik. We both know Paul, JB. He visited Ireland a few years ago. Uh, He's a professor of politics at Youngstown State University in Ohio. Ohio is known as a bellwether for the US presidency. The old saying is, as goes Ohio, so goes the nation. So Paul is well placed to talk about this subject. Let's hear from him now. Right. Well, I think I think what you find is that issues that are important to not just Ohio, but sort of that whole upper Midwest, because all those states are now considered swing states. And what we mean by that is they're undetermined. Right. We're not sure before the election who's going to win. We know a lot of states. We know a state like Montana, Idaho, um, you know, Alabama, they're all going to vote Republican. We know California, New York are going to vote for the Democrats. Most of the states we already know how it's going to turn out. There's only a few states that we don't know how it's going to turn out. And those states are not all equal because a state that has a lot of electoral votes um, and we don't know how it's going to turn out, those states are going to be important. And that describes the upper Midwest. It describes states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Consequently, during a campaign, the candidates spend a lot of time here and they spend a lot of time talking about issues that are important to voters in this part of the country, and maybe not about issues that are important to voters 
um, in non-swing states. The most obvious example of that is trade. Um, when you look at national polls on trade, you find that um, free trade is actually very popular in the United States as a whole. Um, but free trade is not popular in the upper Midwest, which we often refer to as the Rust Belt states, because they have so many sort of decaying industries, you know, rusty old factories that have been closed down. And that closing down was always, was always blamed on trade and, and free trade and international trade. So I think you see trade being, you know, an issue in the campaign, certainly this year with both um, former Vice President Biden and President Trump sort of running on somewhat of an anti-trade policy, even though nationally trade is popular. The explanation for that, I think, is partially the Electoral College and how it focuses our attention on the upper Midwest. Paul, you're actually an advocate for keeping the Electoral College system. Why do you like it so much? You know, one of the, um, the things that tends to be guaranteed by the Electoral College is um, you can't have basically regional candidates, right? You've got to win nationally um, with the Electoral College system. You've got to win separate majorities in separate places. Um, so if we didn't have the Electoral College, um, you could have the possibility of, for example, a regional candidate um, winning, um, you know, the coastal population centers, for example. And so this way, I think you actually get more national representation um, with the Electoral College system. So that's one thing I think in favor of it. Second thing is, um, and you know, we'll, maybe we'll be testing that this, this year, but it tends to come out in the end with a clear winner one way or another. In some ways, because of the way states award their electoral votes with almost all the states, all the states but two, on a winner-take-all system, um, it tends to kind of exaggerate um, the, um, the majorities in the end. Um, and so we have a clear winner. But the Electoral College is not for everybody, JB. Indeed it isn't, as our friend Leslie Marshall now explains. I do believe the Electoral College is not necessary because it doesn't give the democracy that strives for one person, one vote, what we need. And the Electoral College often makes people feel their vote doesn't count. For example, um, here in California, uh, you know, it, it, it's always going to go to the Democratic candidate. So there are people that just say, why vote? And Democrats in the state of Texas would feel the same way. It's going to go to a Republican, why vote? But if every single vote counts and it's actually you win by a majority of the people voting for you, then more people would have the incentive to vote. They would feel their vote counts. And that would be a true democracy. I feel that when the Electoral College was set up, I understand why, but we're a very different nation than when the Electoral College was set up. Uh, and, and our constitution has had changes and amendments before. Will that take place in my lifetime? Probably not, because to get things changed in this country, especially to change something like that and a constitutional amendment, it'll take numerous election cycles. And I, and I fear I will be dead before that happens. Oh, okay. So it's fair to say that it divides opinion. Certainly. Now, one question we had for Paul Saracic is whether it would favor one party over another. Um, you know, even though it was 3% difference in the vote in 2016, um, Donald Trump 
won a clear electoral college victory. And I think you know, it's helpful in the end to have a clear victory. One of the problems that we could have if we went to a straight popular vote system is if it was close at all, and close could mean a few million votes um, that separated them like it was in 2016, then um, you have to recount you know, the whole country, right? Because 138 million people are probably going to cast their vote um, this year. And you, know, you go to every sort of precinct, and if you make a few mistakes in those precincts, in those states, you can suddenly start to make up the numbers. So we'd be recounting, I think, everywhere in the United States after the election. Um, and you know, that could cause problems. Also, we'd have to answer questions. For example, are we going to have um, demand a majority? Um, are we going to have runoff elections? If you don't demand a majority, then you could have multiple candidates running and someone could win the presidency with, let's say, you know, 26% of the vote. Um, and you know, we complain that the Electoral College violates sort of democratic principles. Um, that would, would be even worse. Right. That's that explained. But I was just thinking to myself, can the electors vote for someone else? The faithless electors. What are the faithless electors? Hmm. I can imagine you being one. <laughs> anyway, you're right to ask the question. Are the electors bound to vote the way they pledged? Let's check with our friend John Fortier. Yeah, that's a very good question. And one, one thing in America, in our elections especially, that we always have to say is that, well, it depends on which state you're in. And so we, we allow a lot of differences in the states. Um, so in theory, uh, the electors, once elected, they meet in December, this is December 14th this year, and they could, uh, they don't meet all in one place. That was another feature. They meet each, in each of their states, so it's not one electoral college. Uh, they could vote uh, another way, in theory, as the Constitution has it. Now, um, even before the, the formal binding of electors, I think you could look at our history and say, early on, states realized it was in their interest to have a popular election and then to have winner take all in their states and, and appoint electors who are going to, to be loyal to that result. And so um, if you are a, a state and all of your electors are gonna go to the presidential candidate, even if you win with 50 plus one votes, um, you know, that gives your state more, more power. And essentially all but a couple states do that today. And what about if there is a tie break like there was in an episode of the TV show Veep? Life isn't always like TV shows, Dermot, but um, absolutely, you're right. Let's, let's check in with John. So we do have some alternative procedures, rarely used, um, uh, really last used in uh, 1824. So uh, if, if no one gets a majority, and you can think of a couple of ways that could happen. Um, not so often, but, but in our past, we've sometimes had three major political candidates, or at least a third that, that, that win states. Um, if you have a third candidate who does well, but doesn't win any states, they don't get any electors, it doesn't matter. But if you have a third candidate, then perhaps none of them get a majority. Or in the you know, less likely, but everybody likes to play with the, with the calculator and try to figure this out, the scenario where you have a tie, you have a 269 to 269 tie, that could happen, there would be no majority. In that case, there is an alternative procedure. And what happens is that Congress very directly gets involved. Uh, the House of Representatives selects the president, uh, and it's the new House of Representatives elected in that election, it's in January, uh, so reflecting the November election. 
but they vote in a very strange way, in the way that they don't vote in any other vote, and they vote by their state delegation, meaning each state in the House of Representatives gets one vote. Uh, and so if your state had five representatives, three were Republican, two were Democratic, then that state would probably vote for the Republican. And John, is there any appetite to reform the Electoral College? We have public opinion polling really going back to the 1940s, and it's pretty consistently against the idea of the Electoral College. Uh, 60% plus often say, look, if we were starting all over again, um, we would probably start with a popular vote. We wouldn't go in this direction. Um, that being said, it, 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 in the polls, it doesn't tend to be people's highest priority. Um, and uh, it's very hard to change. That's been pretty fascinating. I have learned a lot. So can you explain the Electoral College to me in 30 seconds now? A absolutely not. Absolutely not. But maybe I could try over a point. Uh, it's so interesting to look at that system and compare it with, you know, the Irish presidential vote. It's very, very different. Well, only if you're going to buy me that pint. <laughs> anyway, uh, of course, Dermot, the electors meet in their respective states in December to cast their votes for president and vice president. So this doesn't happen on the night of the election. This happens afterwards. Mm, correct. Uh, the results are sent to the president of the Senate, who is the vice president, the U.S. vice president. The Congress meets in early January to count the votes, after which the president of the Senate declares the winners. And then on January 20th at noon, the president-elect takes the oath of office and becomes the president of the United States. That's it for this episode. Hope you learned something. JB and I will be back to talk about this election's big story, mail-in voting. And we will look back at one of the closest elections in history, the Florida recount of 2000. For now, take care. <laughs>